Well, this morning we're going to continue to move through this Advent series of studies that we've been engaged in now. This is the third week. This is the third Sunday of Advent. And as we already mentioned, we're following uh, a course of scriptures laid out in the Book of Common Prayer, which was originally published in 1549 uh, for Christian worship in England, in terms of worship, including uh, scripture readings listed out for particular seasons like Christmas and Easter and, and other times. But down through the centuries and decades, it's been used by, by believers to help in both corporate and individual worship. And, and there's comfort in, in, uh, in following the liturgy laid out there, uh, not, not least of all, because as we consider the selected scripture passages for Advent, we're placing ourselves in this historical stream of worship uh, that connects us to followers of Jesus, not only across the world still to this day, but down through history. So there's a, there's a connection there that's a comfort for us. We don't worship uh, in a solitary kind of way, but we join our voices to those in the past and to those across the world in worship. And then, and then along with that, uh, we also benefit from the wisdom of Christian believers in history past as we use the liturgies laid out for us here, these scripture selections, because uh, because as we consider the scriptures that are selected for Advent, uh, we do find that we're helped to think about truths at Christmas time and that we might not otherwise be particularly given to consider. And, and we've actually seen how this has worked out in, in the text selection so far. So, uh, for example, two weeks ago on the first Sunday of Advent, following the, the Book of Common Prayer liturgy, we started the service with Psalm 1, uh, which might not immediately seem like a Christmassy kind of psalm, except in Psalm 1, uh, the, the writer there is speaking about the, the fact that there's wholeness, there's the blessed life that's found in obeying the law of God. And as we went on from there for our study, the text we studied that, uh, that Sunday, we saw that the law of God actually, as Paul outlines things in the book of Romans, is something we can never live up to perfectly. The law of God actually is something that ultimately condemns us because we can't keep things properly. We are sinful creatures, but Christ has come. And what has Christ done for us? Well, he's actually saved us from our sin and not only from the penalty of sin, but he saved us from the power of sin so that now we can live a life according to God's instruction. And that life, as Paul expressed it in Romans chapter 15, that life, or in Romans 13, rather, that life was lived out in a way that loves others according to God's commands. And so we see that while we might not otherwise consider some of these things, the liturgy uh, that, that's given to us helps us think about things in renewing ways. So we're renewed in what it looks like to, to live in obedience to God, live out the law of love for Christ. Last week, we talked about unity in a local congregation. What does it mean to be unified as the people of God? We uh, recognize from Romans chapter 15 that that's actually something Jesus saved us for, to bring people who we would never expect to be together, together, united in God's family. And so the gospel speaks to us, as, as Paul says in Romans 15, and as Christ has welcomed us, as Christ has accepted us, we accept one another. We extend that kind, of, uh, that kind of accepting grace to those as Jesus brings them into the family of God. So again, we might not go there initially as a Christmas sermon. Uh, however, we recognize through the wisdom of those who've gone before that these things are particularly effective uh, to, to renew us in the faith, especially during the Christmas season. And so this week, as we continue uh, our, our uh, travels through the, through the Book of Common Prayer, we come again to, to passages that we might not initially set out as Christmas texts. However, as we consider them, we see what a useful place they have for us as we consider things this holiday season. And, and so we began the service today with Psalm 4. 
And there in Psalm 4, we have a tone set for us around desiring ultimately the approval of the Lord. So if you remember how Psalm 4 began in our call to worship, what, what does he say? Well, in his condition of distress, the psalmist isn't looking for approval from those around him, but instead, how does he cry out? Well, he says, answer me when I call God who vindicates me. It's the Lord's vindication that the psalmist is longing for, not the voices of those around him, but the Lord's vindication that the psalmist is longing for. And then the psalmist says things like, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us. Oh, Lord, you're the one who puts joy in my heart. So in the psalmist's case, he's longing for the vindication. He's longing for the approval of the Lord, no matter what others around him may say. It's that that brings him ultimate joy. And, and it's this theme of being oriented toward the ultimate approval of Jesus himself that's here for us in this first Corinthians passage this morning. Uh, in, this, in these verses, we find the Apostle Paul is, is making it very clear that his goal and ambition at a personal level is nothing less than living for the ultimate approval of Jesus Christ, uh, which will come on the day of Jesus's return, which again connects us immediately to this idea of Christmas. Because in the first coming of Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas time, Christians are always compelled to consider the fact that Jesus is coming again. The one who came is the one who's returning. And Paul is saying in this section, in light of the fact Jesus is coming back, I am ultimately going to live for his approval and no other. And so as, as we come to this passage, uh, we, can, we can be very renewed in this, in this idea of living for the approval of Christ. Now, uh, we, we, we'll, we'll begin more specifically with this text. But before we begin, we do need to say something about, about this whole subject matter. Because living for the approval of Christ can uh, easily, maybe, we can, we can tip into putting that in a category that is not actually a gospel category. So if we start to think about the approval of Christ, we can start to think that I must do all of these things. I must live, even as, as we'll talk about from this passage today, I must live in this certain kind of way, because if I live in this certain kind of way, then Jesus Christ will have me. So, so, so I'm, I'm compelled to do these things, and I must do these things. And if I falter, I'm, I'm, I'm surely going to be in this position of pity and despair, because if I don't do these things, Christ will not approve of me. It's very easy to start thinking about approval of Jesus in those kinds of categories. However, as we come to a passage like this, we have to understand that that is the exact opposite of the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is, because of what Christ has done, I now live out my life in all my pursuit of him, in my failures, like Jason talked about in our confession this morning, in these ups and downs, I live out the entirety of my life, not hoping to make it so he'll have me, but knowing that he's already done everything to secure me in the family of God. He has us. He's the one we can never be separated from. And it's out of that which we live. Which, which we have to understand, even as Paul is speaking about this here, Paul is the same one who wrote in his letter to the Galatians, he says, this life which I now live in the flesh, you remember this passage from Galatians chapter 2? I live in faith in the Son of God, not hoping he'll have me, but I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me, Paul the murderer, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And from there, Paul lives the entirety of his life seeking now to approve the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one I love. He's the one I want to please. Nothing else can compare with it. 
And so as we come under the sound of this text this morning, we want to remind ourselves of the critical gospel order of these kind of verses, even as Paul is presenting them to us as an apostle. He's not moving from a place of hoping he can get Christ. He's moving from a place of being absolutely secured in the reality of Christ's eternal, unchanging, never failing, never abandoning love. And as we think about that, then we move forward from this place of of rest, even as we diligently and in a disciplined way pursue living out what he calls us to as people of faith. And so we just need to say all that because to throw out the words approval of Jesus without making sure that's understood in the gospel way from the very beginning in our minds can leave us in a place of discouragement rather than in a place of renewed faith. And we need to be in a place of renewed faith. Remember what we talked about last week with the purpose of the scriptures? What did Paul tell us is always the purpose of the scriptures. It's hope. The purpose of the scriptures is to give us hope. And so we need to come to a passage even like this today, renewed in the fact that it's centered on what Christ has accomplished. We come from this place of, of certain hope. So with all that in mind, then we'll set the context a little bit more for 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Uh, so you can have that open. I encourage you to do so. And, and we'll, we'll set the context a little further in this way. Um, some of you will know the name Oz Guinness. He's, he's a Christian author and apologist. Uh, he's written many helpful books. And, and in one book entitled The Call, he makes this comment. He says, when we discuss our plans and endeavors, we automatically think of notions like aims, ambition, achievement, assessment, and so on. But we often overlook the vital part of audience. And then he goes on to say, only madmen, geniuses, and supreme egoists do things purely for themselves. It is easy to buck a crowd, not too hard to march to a different drummer, but it is truly difficult, perhaps impossible, to march to your own drumbeat. Most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The question, Guinness says, is not whether we have an audience but which audience we have. The question Guinness says is not uh, whether we have an audience, but, but which audience we have. And so we reflect on that. We seek to answer the question, who, who is my audience? Who's your audience? Right? Who, who's my audience when I make certain plans? Who's my audience when I'm seeking to curate my reputation? Who's my audience when I'm seeking to engage in certain things, priorities in life, career moves, all of these kinds of things, the things I say and do, how I want to be perceived. Who is my audience in those things? And we can reflect on seasons of life when one person or, or other occupies that, that high place, a certain relationship merit maybe. We all, we all really care about, about somebody's approval and, and, we, and we want that more than anything else. Now, maybe it's our parents that are in a certain season or our peer group. It could even be a social media following. God help us. We, we know what it is to live concerned about an audience. And what Paul speaks to the Corinthians about here, what he speaks to us about, as he speaks about, out of his own example, he's going to talk to us. He speaks about his own example of life and ministry and what it means to ultimately live, as the Puritan John Cotton put it, to ultimately live before an audience of one. So, 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 which is a timely word for us. And it was a timely word for the Corinthian Christians. But we read this letter and we see that, that this church at Corinth was very concerned about things like human wisdom and perception. They, they were concerned to prove themselves right, even if it meant taking believers in their own congregation to public court. They, they were concerned to have, to have spiritual gifts that were the most extravagant and, and demonstrable. 
that they were very concerned for the watching world and for others in the church to see that, that they were very reputable people. Uh, the scholar Tom Schreiner, he, he writes some very helpful things on 1 Corinthians, and he says, of all that's going on at the church of Corinth, at root, the problem is arrogance. They want to be thought of in the highest way possible. And then we can identify with that at some level. There's this watching world, and we want to be thought, well thought of uh, by those people who are observing us. We want our reputation to be strong and distinguished. And, that, and that's not necessarily bad in those, in those various contexts. We want to be well thought of. In fact, under the scriptures, we want to be well thought of. Doesn't Paul say things like, let your reasonableness be known to all? In other words, it's great if Christians don't look weird. That's good for the watching world to see. We need to be normal looking, right, to a certain degree. But at the same time, when we do have those more honest moments, we can admit that, that really there is this piece of us that just wants to be a little more than the person I'm sitting next to. Maybe a little better thought of. Make just a little more money. Maybe have just a little better position. Right? That kind of thing can creep in. And as in the case at Corinth, it, it tends towards arrogance. It, it can tend towards a pride that takes root in our lives, which as it did in this, in this early church here, it, it leads to strife and it spins out in controversy and, and all of these kinds of things that Jesus has ultimately come to save us from. Right? And, and, so, and so for their example, as Paul says in verse 6, he's doing this to set an example, what he gives us in verses 1 to, four, one to 5, uh, Paul speaks there about his own posture of heart as it relates to following Jesus. And, and while there's some uniqueness to Paul's situation, because he is an apostle after all, well, while, there's, while there's no doubt some uniqueness with Paul and even the other gospel ministers that he's, that he's referring to in, in his context here, as we consider what's here, we can be renewed in what it looks like ultimately to live for the approval of one, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and so this passage helps us along these lines. What, what does it look like to have a posture of life that is ultimately oriented toward Jesus's approval alone. And so, and so let's look through this together. We're going to start just with the first verse, and I'll read it again for us. But in the first verse, Paul says that uh, when, when, we, when we speak about these things, he wants everyone to make sure that he's thought of as secondary. Paul says, think of me as secondary. And so I'll just read verse one again. He says, a person should think of us. So, so that us there, if we were just reading through 1 Corinthians, we would know that's that's uh, people like Paul and Apollos and, and Cephas, which is another name for Peter, Timothy, uh, apostles and, and ministers of the gospel is who Paul is speaking about there. So Paul says a person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ and as managers of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. So Paul starts by, by connecting himself and some others to the mysteries of God, uh, which might sound a bit esoteric and even abstract in terms of how he's speaking there. But, but the term mystery is, is a word that Paul uses a number of times and in, and in different contexts. But ultimately, when he uses that term, he's using it to speak about the bigness of what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. When Paul speaks about a mystery, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. So here, Paul is speaking about the role of apostles and also of other preachers and teachers who, who minister with him. Their role is connected to this proclaiming and teaching ministry centered on, centered on the gospel, centered on the good news about what God has ultimately done in Jesus Christ. And, and this particular work isn't surprising when Paul references it, for him to reference this mystery. We know this about Paul. We know uh, that this is the kind of thing that Paul is about, this gospel preaching. What is interesting here is how Paul identifies himself in connection to this gospel ministry. So here, he refers to himself and others 
with two terms, which ultimately get at the same thing. So, so first of all, he refers to himself as a servant of Christ. And second, he uses this word we have translated, at least in the CSB translation, we have translated as manager of the mysteries of God. So servant and manager. And, and this is significant. Um, the, the word translated servant here is a different word than we often find translated as servant in the, in the New Testament. Uh, the word that, that's here describes a, a wide array of different activities in the ancient world, ranging anywhere from a, from a household slave to a junior officer serving in a, a superior officer in military forces. It has, it has a wide range of meaning. But one thing is really consistent in every way that it's used is that it always refers to a solidly secondary position. It's always somebody who is in the number two spot at least. It's not a high-profile role. It's constantly a subordinate role. So, so that's the word translated as servant here. And then, and then Paul also refers to himself as a manager. And that manager term is, is often translated in the New Testament as, as steward. And maybe that's how your, your, your Bible reads, depending on the, one you have, the translation you have. Um, but, but manager, it can actually sound like a kind of high-up role, can't it? You know, we think we think of maybe a finance manager or a project manager. That's a that's a position with uh, with, with authority and significance. It sounds like a very important role. And and while there is some of that uh, in, in this term here, ultimately, the English word steward is a little more clarifying than manager, because in Paul's day, this word used, it refers to one who who might be in charge of a wealthy person's estate, for example. Or they might be a bookkeeper or even a debt collector or a general administrator of someone's property. And in the book of Romans, Paul uses this term to describe a city manager. So again, it can have varied application. But, but at the same time, the word always refers to somebody who is clearly in a subordinate position. They're in a secondary position charged to oversee something that doesn't ultimately belong to them. They are not the owner. They're the steward of somebody else's whatever it may be, wealth, good service, whatever, whatever it is. They're secondary. And so to these Corinthians who are, who are struggling with arrogance and attempt to one-up each other, all of these kinds of things, this is how Paul describes his gospel role. I'm subordinate in this ministry that I've been given, and, and I'm a caretaker. I'm not an owner. I'm, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. I'm not a master of the mysteries of God. I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. I'm watching over my master's estate, if you like, with a, with a realization of responsibility for, for what isn't ultimately mine, but for which I will give an account. So, so you people at Corinth, Paul's saying, here's how I want you to see me. I'm secondary. I'm subordinate. I'm not in the master role. I'm in the service role. I am not primary. I am secondary. And, and as we consider our own orientation as Christian believers, just in life in general, we, we, sh we should note the humility that's reflected in the way Paul considers himself here. Because we do have to remember that Paul is, is an apostle. The apostles, in this formal sense of the term, they were a unique and unrepeatable group who saw the resurrected Jesus and were given very specific authority in the early church. They performed signs and wonders which confirmed their authority. Paul talks about that at the end of 2 Corinthians. Paul, as an apostle, mediated the authority of Christ to God's people, as did Peter and James and John and the other apostles. There, there was no given office in terms of authority in the church higher than the apostles in the New, in the New Testament church. Now, now, the apostles, in that sense, they are no more. We always need to remember that, because sometimes somebody will come along saying they are one. 
but, but while the 12 apostles were necessary at the church's inception, and then Paul was added, as he describes himself as one untimely born, as Paul was added, going forward, we see things like when James was killed, the apostle James was killed in Acts chapter 12, they didn't replace James. The apostolic set was a closed set. It was a unique office, but it was a very high position in the church, commissioned by the risen, a vision of the risen Christ himself. So Paul occupies an extraordinarily unique, authoritative, powerful, in that sense, office. And remembering that does cause us to be a bit more affected by the way Paul writes here when he says things like, think of us in this way. He's obviously including himself in that. Humanly speaking, we may have expected Paul to follow his statement. You know, a person should think about me in this way. We might have expected Paul to follow that statement quite differently, especially to a group that's prone toward arrogance themselves and thinking they're, they're, they're pretty amazing, amazing stuff. We, we could expect Paul to say something, you know, a person should think of me in this way. I'm part of a unique and unrepeatable group. Did you know that? I have, a, I have authority proved by signs and wonders, and I minister the binding word of the risen Christ upon his church. That's pretty big. In fact, in fact, maybe next time when I come to Corinth, it would be wonderful if you would have some special robes made up and ready for me so everybody could see just how special I am in my role. Humanly speaking, that wouldn't be a surprising way to speak. That may be given Paul's office, but that is not remotely how Paul describes it. When he speaks of his identity, he purposefully chooses two descriptive words that place him solidly in a secondary and subordinate position. Under Christ, I'm a servant and I'm a student. And, and again, we know Paul is writing this as an instructional example for the people of Corinth. He says as much in verse 6. And, and it's instruction that's, that's useful for us too. Because we, we, when we live in such a way that our ultimate audience is the world around us or maybe even, even people who are important to us. When we live ultimately for the approval and esteem of others, what do we often find ourselves doing? Well, we often find ourselves very prone to hype our own status just a little bit, don't we? Isn't that what's so easy to do? I hope it's easy for you. It would make me feel better if it was, right? Because whatever the aspect of our identity maybe that we're talking about, you know, we like to say we're this, but, but you notice, I notice how it's very easy just to add a little frosting on top of that, just a little bit better than it really is, right? It's so easy to live, always trying to squeeze the most value out of all we can to make ourselves out to be just a little bigger maybe than we really are. It's that human condition in us. But Paul here reflects such humility. In fact, he, re he represents such security in who he is, doesn't he? Think of me in this way. I am in a secondary position in relationship to my role as a gospel man. I'm not high and mighty. I, 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 am, I am low. In fact, if, if you would like to see me in a role as anything, just view me as a subordinate. So this is the posture of one who ultimately lives for the approval of Christ alone. I, I'm not ultimately interested, Paul is saying, in speaking about my primacy, my accomplishment, my roles, all of these things. You can just think of me as a secondary type person. Which, of course, is a, is a posture that reflects Jesus' Jesus's own posture. Right? We sang about it earlier, didn't we? Prophets had foretold that a mighty king would come. A long-awaited ruler, God's anointed one. But what? But the sovereign of all looked helpless and small as God gave the world his own son. Down Jesus comes to a poor girl and a poor family and a poor lost world. So what does it look like to live for the approval of Jesus alone? Well, Paul, and in all the legitimate, 
legitimacy of his high position, he says, it would be best if you considered me a little low. Consider me secondary. And so we can just reflect on this. What, what, what difference would it make in our posture toward others during this Christmas season if we just made a determination in my family life, maybe, or in my, in my role with my coworkers, if I just saw myself as a secondary person? I'm not the primary one. I'm actually serving the primary one in this role, uh, seeking, seeking to be faithful just, just where I am. Paul tells the church to think of him in this way. And then in verse 2, he moves on to, to clarify his priority. So first of all, he says, think about me as secondary. Sec and, then, and then he goes on to, to clarify his priority. And we have this there in verse 2. Uh, Paul, Paul says in verse 2, in this regard, so based on what I just said, it is required that managers be found faithful. Managers be found faithful. Uh, so, so Paul's continuing with that steward or manager metaphor from verse 1, and he's saying that his objective is, is, is very clear. Uh, because in the ministry given to him by Jesus Christ, so, so in this work that's set out before him, as unique as it is, he, he is a steward of the mysteries of God, remember. But in his gospel work, he wants to simply be found faithful, which is just so refreshing to hear, isn't it? What, what a wonderful priority. If, if you sit down at the beginning of the new year, as it comes, comes around and you think, you know, I've got a number of goals, which I'd like to accomplish this year. I'm going to write them all out here. And, and, as, and as good as goals are, as, as, as important even as they are for our life and progress and discipline and all of those kinds of things, what, 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 how oftentimes do we find ourselves sitting down and saying right at the top, you know, if I could just be faithful. If I could just be found to be a faithful person in my, in my roles where God has set me down. And that's what Paul is saying here. I, I need to be thought of as secondary. And I, my goal in all of this is simply to be, to be faithful, which is refreshing to hear, not least of all from a gospel minister. Right? Because let's be honest, that we, 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 we can very much see how it's easy for somebody maybe who stands up front and talks a little too much to find themselves desiring to be, to be famous, desiring to be fancy, all of these other things. Paul, in all his authority and in the uniqueness of his role, he says, I just want to exercise myself in a way that reflects honesty and, 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 and dutifully carry out the commission that has been given to me by God for his people. Faithfulness is his priority. So just as a manager of a master's estate would be really careful to care for assets that don't ultimately belong to him, that's how Paul is recognizing his, his role here. He's been given this trust that, that he's accountable to a higher master for this grace given to him in his role, and he, and he wants to effectively do the job that's been given to him well. In fact, you can read Matthew 25 for homework, maybe, where Jesus teaches a parable about this. But, but we have this kind of language applied ultimately not just to Paul, but to all believers in places like, in places like 1 Peter chapter 4. Remember how Peter, in, in 1 Peter 4, he says things like, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as what? Do you remember the word he uses? Same word as here. As good stewards, as good managers of God's varied grace. Huh? There's a priority reflected in Paul's life that's certainly applicable to our own as followers of Jesus and that as we live ultimately for Christ's approval, the Lord gives us gifts and abilities. He gives us uh, tasks to do. He places us in certain and unique contexts to live effectively for him. And he's given all believers these spirit-empowered capacities that are unique and are meant to be used for the service of others. And he gives us opportunities to exercise those things, all of which come from him, belong to him, and we are responsible to steward those well. 
to express ourselves well in those things given to us that don't ultimately belong to us. And sometimes when the approval of others starts to tug very strong uh, in strong ways in our lives, we can forget that we're managers of gifts that belong to Christ. We, we, we can get drawn away from stewarding the ways Christ has blessed us with, with even like family life. And, and, and we can be drawn away in, in, in things like pleasing certain bosses. Those things can become most important. We can live for the approval of what society around us says. And instead of exercising ourselves as faithful stewards of the gifts God's given us, faithful stewards of the capacity he's given us to love others well and engage with those in a meaningful and Christ-like way. Instead, we can find ourselves living for the approval of others and forgetting to manage those things that Christ has entrusted to us. And so, and so we can be drawn away from faithful management of gifts, but, but Paul reminds us that we're not an owner in these kind of situations. Paul is an administrator in a sense of, of graces that belong to another, and so are we. And, and, so, and so we ask ourselves a very simple question. What is, what is my priority? Who, who, who am I seeking ultimately to serve in the way I'm spending my time? Who am I seeking to please? Our priorities reflect those sorts of things. And we recognize the fact that as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve now the gospel and the good news that Christ has brought us into embracing, we recognize that we have unique responsibilities to Jesus as the one who gives gifts, which we're now called to steward. And so we can check ourselves by Paul's priorities, thinking about our own. And ultimately, all this points to where Paul ultimately gets to here in verses 3 and 5, uh, when he moves through uh, spe speaking about, uh, speaking about his, his own identity, where he says, think of me secondary, in a secondary kind of way. He speaks about his priority. Now what he comes to ultimately is that all he's doing, he's doing for the, for the final evaluation of Jesus and Jesus alone. I just care what Jesus is going to say. That's what Paul gives us in these last verses. So let me read those for us here, just verses 3 to 5. Remind us of them. He says, It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you. Just in case you thought I cared. I don't really. Or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. In case you think I'm arrogant, just, just so you know, I'm not actually counting as all that important what I even think about myself, which is something. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. So in short, Paul's saying that I'm just, I'm just not living for any human approval. He's not being arrogant. He's recognizing that his own approval of himself even can be caused to, to, to misunderstand what's going on in his own heart. In fact, Paul, Paul says that even though I have a clean conscience, so he's not aware of any immediate or pervasive sin that's going on in his life. Even so, Paul doesn't, doesn't even live comforted by his own conscience. We say there's the adage where a clean conscience is a soft pillow. Paul's not even living by that adage, right? He says, I don't even judge myself. Which, which we just need to be clear on here because, because Paul's not saying that we never exercise discernment or make important calls around the truth as we live out the Christian life. That's not what he's saying. How do we know that? Flip two chapters over and he tells the Christians to judge each other instead of going to court. 
So, so, he, so he tells us there is a place in the Christian life, very much so, where we are engaging in discernment, engaging under the scriptures in ways of evaluating this is true, this is false, this is faithful, this is unfaithful, this is reasonable, this is unreasonable. There's a sense in which that's absolutely true in the Christian life. We know that's true. But Paul's saying that when it comes right down to it, even how I feel about something, whether right or wrong, is not where my ultimate trust is going to be placed. I'm not going to live for human approval in general. I don't even live for my own approval, Paul says. But instead, I live for the final day when Christ will return and exercise a perfect evaluation. That's what I'm living for. Paul's saying, in effect, that is the controlling factor of my whole life and ministry not what people ultimately say about me not how others may evaluate me successful or unsuccessful fruitful or unfruitful wise or foolish all those different things that's not what controls me paul says what controls me what compels me is what christ will say about my life on the final day after all it's only jesus who can see into the darkest corners of my heart anyway even my conscience at that, that's only half the picture. I've got all kinds of unconscious stuff going on, I'm sure. There's going one direction or the other. We can't even possibly know our own selves well enough to evaluate these kinds of things. What is he saying? Jesus is the one who comes and sees into all the dark corners. He knows the intentions of the heart. Nothing is cloudy to him. Things are cloudy to me. Jesus is the one who knows me perfectly. And ultimately, all I care about is what Jesus will say. Ultimately, all Paul is looking for is the final commendation that we have. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, in doing so, again, Paul's not, not, not running pell-mell through life, making it up as he goes. So I hope Jesus likes this one. Oh, I bet he didn't like that one. That's not how Paul's going about things. right? Remember last week, Paul's life is absolutely controlled by an understanding of Scripture's truth. He's guided in his understanding of all things by what God has revealed in the Scriptures. That, and, and, and we have that same thing as well. We have the truth of God to guide us in all these things. We're not guessing what puts a smile on Jesus' face. We know what it means to live faithfully under him. But we're not performing for the approval of others either. We're living, like, like, like I quoted earlier from, from John Cotton, we're living before this audience of one. People can say anything. They can say nice things. They can say mean things. They can mock. They can laugh. They can applaud all of these things. Some may approve very highly, but all Paul says is that on the final day when Jesus returns, sees every single thing perfectly, even the deepest intentions of my heart that I can't even sort out. All I care is that he's the one who exercises ultimate uh, approval and justice. Now, as we think about that, Put that kind of frame around all the different areas of life as you live out the gospel. That there is something extraordinarily freeing in this truth. There is something that brings extraordinary rest in what's reflected here. What would change, for example, what would change in your professional life if you lived every moment seeking the smile of Christ despite the smile or frown of your coworker or supervisor? What would change in your relationships if what you cared more about than anything else is Jesus' smile and him saying, well done, instead of the, the fleeting opinions of others and those kinds of things? What would change in the pressures you feel at school, kids who are in school? What would change in the pressures you feel at school? Right? If at the end of the day, all you cared about was the smile of Christ, whatever they think about me in, 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 in this grade or that or that group or this, I don't, I, ultimately, I don't really care because I care about the smile of Jesus upon my life. That, that is the thing that compels me in all I do. He's the only one who can know me anyway. 
Now, again, we do all this with our Bibles open. We do this with others. Paul says, you know, I'm not even going to judge myself. We do remember in Galatians, Paul had some pretty hard words for Peter because Peter had done a little gospel forgetting in the way he was practicing some things. So we see there's this need for community life, all of these kinds of things. But there's an ultimacy that Paul is directing our attention to here and that we live out our lives in, in ways that can even be costly before others. All of these things, but we do so for the approval of Jesus alone, which is free, which is free. Not least of all, because we know a humanity, we know how bad we are at really seeing through everything. We know even in our most wise moments, even this week, you're following the news this week on, on measure 114. What did we have? We had a federal court saying, no, yes. I don't even remember. It's all, bleh, right? We have a federal court saying, yes. We have a state court saying, no. Even in the courts of the land, we, we, can't, we can't seem to, to be connected in these things. And we, and we feel that even in our own lives. So much so that we see this start to work out in ways in humanity that reflects our, our own recognition of the fact we can't see through things well all the time. So, so we have things start flaring up. Even as we follow Jesus, we can have things start flaring up like legalism. You, you know, I, I know I don't get it all the time. What I just really need is if you could set out these 17 rules, and then I need somebody who I respect and love to come tell me when I'm doing those rules really well. That'd be very helpful for me. Could you just set that up? Or we go the other way and we live in total relativism, right? It doesn't really matter what you think as long as what I think is good and all you need to do with your thinking is make sure you're thinking what I'm thinking is okay for me. So we either have the legalism on the one side or the relativism on the other side, all because we recognize what? We're frail in our judgments. We don't get it right all the time. So we're swinging all over the place. And what does Paul say? I don't care. I don't care about any of that. I just care that Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful. Well done, my good and faithful servant. After all, the one who's come is the one who's going to come again. And if he's coming again, that is the day I'm living for. That's the day I'm living for. And we can feel our frailty with this. It can, it can impact us in different ways. We can feel our, our own frailty, even with living for the smile of Christ as we go through life with our own ups and downs and our foibles and these kinds of things. And, and as we do, it's very interesting that in the Book of Common Prayer, we, we borrowed from it for our part of our confession today, but in the Book of Common Prayer for their Advent reading for this Sunday, they also have a reading from Matthew chapter 11. And if you remember what's going on in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist has been in prison. And he sends some, some, some friends of his to Jesus. And the, and the one who has been sent to light the way, to prepare people for the coming of Christ, what's his question for, for Jesus when he sends his friends? You remember the question? Are you the guy? Are you the guy? Because how can the, how can the king who's coming leave me who's preparing the way in prison? You're about to get my head chopped off by this guy. right? Are you, are you, are you sure that you're the one? And what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus quotes the Bible, doesn't he? He quotes Isaiah, and he says, go back and tell John these things that are going on. You know, I've been doing all this stuff Isaiah said I would do when I came, like heal the blind, uh, heal, heal the sick, and, and, and cause the blind to see, and all of these kinds of things. And blessed is the one who's not ashamed of me, those kinds of things. And then, and then he says this about John, who's not quite getting it. John and his frailty, he's not judging things properly. Listen to what Jesus says about, about John. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. You mean the guy who just screwed up everything he was trying to figure out about you? The guy who, who couldn't figure out that you were the one, that even though he's been talking about how you're the one, the guy who's having all this weakness in his own understanding of things? What does Jesus say? I just need to commend you to him. In terms of Old, Old Covenant, Old Testament prophets, he's the guy. 
He's had this special place of preparing the way for me. There's no one greater than John the Baptist in that context. And we can take such encouragement from that because John is there in all that weakness. Coming to Christ, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't have it all together. He's seeking to be faithful. He doesn't have it all together. And what does Christ do? He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He says, with all you have, with all you are, he's the one, we, he, he's the one who's done things in a way that, that honors me properly. The greatest, the greatest born of women to date is John. And so we can just take great comfort in the fact that this is not a call to perfection. This is not a call to get it right or Jesus won't love you. This is a call to follow Christ as he saves us and ultimately live for his smile, knowing that he does know perfectly. He knows our hearts, the intentions, the, the struggles, all of these things. And ultimately what he does as we turn to him and seek again and again to return in faithfulness, he smiles upon us as we live our lives for him. And so we're just affected by that this Christmas season. What does it look like to live for the smile of Christ? What does it look like to be able to say with, with all grace, maybe we can't say it out loud. Maybe you need to say it out loud to somebody. It, it, that might be fine too. But just to be able to say, you know, I don't really care. what you do. I, I don't care if you approve or disapprove. I, I don't because I'm living for Christ. And, and ultimately at the end of the day, at the end of the age, what you say means nothing compared to what Jesus will say. And we live for that. We're, we're moved by that in faithfulness. The supremacy of Jesus and the ultimacy of what it looks like to live for his smile. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would encourage us in these things. We, we want to live for the smile of Christ. He's the one who's given everything for us. We want to respond to that uh, by living for his, for his approval. Uh, his way is the good way. His way is the way of life. We pray, uh, Lord Jesus, that you would help us live in a way that reflects a secondary position. You're the one uh, that our lives point to. You're the one who gives gifts that we need to steward well. You're the one that we're called to follow, and we want to follow you more faithfully. Uh, so give us the clarity and the compulsion, the power by the ministry of the Spirit that we need for these things. In your name we pray. Amen.